This is a Tadad podcast. Today I'm joined by Alicia Miller. Alicia is a co-founder of the Forum on Tax Administration's Community of Interest on Behavioral Insights and has authored several publications on behavioral insights, including her most recent release, Behavioral Insights for Better Tax Administration, A Brief Guide. In her day job, Alicia is the Director of Analytics, Research, and Technology at the IRS. She is passionate about helping organizations build better people, strategies, and innovation agendas. Alicia, it's nice to have you on the podcast. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. And uh, I will start off saying uh, I work with the IRS, but today I'm here representing my own views and opinions, and I'm excited to, to continue the podcast with you all. Much of your work in recent years has focused on this topic of behavioral insights. What is behavioral insights? It's about understanding human behavior and applying that to policies, interventions. How can we better achieve our goals? So in tax administrations, whether we're trying to improve our taxpayer services, if we're trying to increase our the amount of people that are using some of our tools and services, or if we're trying to improve compliance, all of these are so fundamentally based in behaviors, human behaviors. The more that we can understand that, we can understand why some of our programs are not achieving its objectives, why some of them are, and how we can improve. And so it's it's all about human behavior. So you co-founded and led an international tax community on behavioral insights. Can you tell us a bit more about this and how it got started? One of my, my colleagues, John, had actually presented at the the OECD started having a conversation with a couple of people, which we carried on. So we actually got a handful of countries together who are doing some work in behavioral insights. Uh, this is within tax administration. And we realized we were kind of copying each other. We were borrowing insights and said, hey, you know, what would happen if we talked more regularly, if we shared more about what we're doing, not just some of the more publicized work, but if we really just talked and shared some of the things that are working for us, not working for us, some of our new innovations, maybe what if we extended this conversation to even more countries? What would happen? And it was so amazing because that's exactly what we did. We started this community of interest. It quickly grew to, you know, more than 30, 30 countries in tax administrations. And it was just amazing to see how much interest and engagement there was on this topic and across the spectrum. And some people had just started out and they're doing some their first experiments. Some of these, uh, you know, people like the UK had been around doing this for years. And then we had some that said, okay, well, I don't really know what this is, but it sounds interesting. Maybe I should be in part of the conversation. And they joined us just to learn what it was about. And so, you know, from there, it's just expanded into some really great conversations. So can you tell us any new ideas that came out of this? Is there an example that you found particularly interesting? Working in a global level, I think we learned that we're all, we all have a lot of similarities in our mission and what we're trying to do, but sometimes there's differences in how we go about it. For instance, you know, I'm from the U.S., and for years, we would go to taxpayers and, and say, we will not call you. If you get called, someone's asking you for money, it's a scam, we will not call you. We're very paper-based in our communications, but then uh, talking to some of our colleagues abroad, they actually do have very active call centers. And, you know, in, in one situation, a taxpayer actually commented, 
you know, if it's important enough, my tax administration will call me. They will call me and tell me I need to do something. And, and so it's interesting to look at what some of those differences are because that does impact some of the strategies. A lot of times what we see from behavioral scientists is they're trying to de determine what changes behavior and then explain why. What's the reason that you saw these differences between a before and after? And it's usually done through an experimental trial. And so for us, and you know, we we might, especially if it's very paper-based, you know, send out a letter of communication. We would try different templates and see what worked the best as far as um, maybe getting people to use some of our help services, or maybe if you have an overdue uh, tax notice to actually make your payments. But one thing that did come out that was interesting is our, our, our colleagues in Norway. So a couple of years ago, we all went through a pandemic, completely changed how we work. And so we're sitting here thinking about how we use behavioral insights for building evidence to make better decisions in the future, better operations in the future. And we were walking into an environment where there was no playbook. None of us had ever walked into that environment before, but it was humbling that some of our uh, you would see some senior leaders saying, what can we do? How can we apply behavioral insights? And they needed something now. And, and so we would actually canvas and say, what do we know from our literature? What do we think? What are some of our hypotheses about what's going to work? And, and Tax Norway says, you know what? We're going to send out a survey experiment where they crafted the survey, got a statistical sample, and they would provide information and just say, all right, here's a scenario. We're, let's say we go out with this communication. And then, and then garner responses about how does this change your perception? They actually had a test where they could show that just by advertising that they were going to, uh, you know, reduce the number of audits, which is reasonable. If you have a lot of people working from home, you're limiting contact, people have fewer, uh, you know, people are losing their jobs. It's a reasonable response that you want to show empathy. And I think that was a large part of the conversation, but what they found was there was a, an increase in the number of people who felt like they didn't trust the organization because more people were going to cheat. And now you're not able to do your job. And so it actually lowered trust in tax administration according to the experiment. And so to be able to show a new kind of technique to get those insights and bring that back to not only their leadership, but our broader community and saying, hey, this is something that you might want to be aware of. It's based in the literature. We've been able to show it through this experiment. Uh, it, it was just great to see, again, tax administration applying some innovative techniques, but then also through these dialogues, being able to share that more broadly. So let's talk about your publication, Behavioral Insights for Better Tax Administration, a brief guide. Can you tell us more about this, please? Yeah, so this actually came out of our work with uh, the OECD's Forum on Tax Administration. And as we were having this dialogue, as we were talking, some of the, the lessons that we learned are, you know, you kind of need to work at a couple different levels. For the tax administrations that started down this journey, who were able to have some of their successful applications of behavioral insights, is that, you know, it always started with support from the top levels. When the, when the top levels said, I care about this. I want to see this happen. It was much easier to make things happen. And I think everyone here can relate to that. And we knew that in order to help some of those, you know, emerging countries and behavioral insights units, that we needed to make sure that they had 
the awareness at their top level for what to do. And this is one of those areas where we said, okay, we're going to go, we're going to pull together to understand how different people are applying this. We're going to put this together as a vision for what tax administrations can do, what's going to be the value add, you know, how you can get started, but be able to communicate it in a way that's going to reach the top level. And so a lot of our dialogues, the practitioner level, uh, we're, we're really getting into those details about how you do different experiments, but you really needed to take it up a level. And so this was a way for us to really synthesize a lot of our conversations, put together some new ideas that we hadn't been able to put forward and take it to our top levels and saying, hey, you're going to hear this term behavioral insights. Here's what it is. Here's why you need to pay attention. You identify several areas of application to tax administration, including taxpayer services, as well as enforcement. So what are some of the key takeaways for our audience? In this guide, we start with introducing you to behavioral insights and some of the psychology that actually influences our decision making. If we go back, we all thought, oh, people are just these completely rational beings. Every decision is this cost benefit analysis. What benefits me? Um, but over time, we realized people are not these perfect computers. There's aspects of our environment, social factors, and you know other more individual factors that help us to make decisions, to take actions. So then in our guide, we take this and apply it to tax administration. What programs could you apply this thinking to? What questions might you ask to take a behavioral look at your programs and then show some real examples of behavioral interventions and these success stories? Because that's what we're all looking for, right? How is this going to benefit us? Um, so then once you get as excited as we are about this, we walk you through the considerations for how to get started and build your behavioral insights programs. But let's talk about applications. So you can take a behavioral lens in every functional area of tax administration from registration all the way to collection. So if you're thinking about a behavioral intervention, you might ask a question like one we explored, how can I get a taxpayer with an overdue balance, someone who's late on their payments, to pay their taxes? So here we're looking for ways to motivate a taxpayer to take an action, which is to make a payment. And we want them to do this now rather than later. In the U.S., we sent different letter designs, you know, different presentations for instructions for how you can resolve your balance. And, and we saw that some worked better than others and what worked for some groups weren't always what worked best for other groups. But you also might want to ask not just how can you get a taxpayer to make an overdue payment, but why did they have a late balance to begin with? And understanding those root causes and barriers might lead you to some completely different interventions altogether, and those might lead to even earlier compliance. But let's talk about each of the areas we highlight in the guide so we can explore this further. Let's start with taxpayer services. Behavioral insights might help you create interventions to reduce overload at your call centers or migrate taxpayers to online or alternative service channels. You might look at your systems and how you can design those to reduce errors, such as uh, pre-populating forms or designing prompts to flag potential issues. And if you send communications either for your services or enforcement, we do have evidence that shows 
that who initiates a communication, what type of communication is sent, when it is sent, or even how information is presented, can influence what kind of response you get. If we go into enforcement, which is another major area of tax administration, one of the things behavioral scientists have discovered is that what matters isn't always how much enforcement you conduct, but rather the perceptions of whether taxpayers believe they will be caught and how much they will feel the consequences. So even if overall audit rates are low, some taxpayers may perceive their risk is really high and they might have this perception, if I cheat, the tax administration is gonna find out, I don't wanna deal with that, so I'm not gonna take the risk. And we can take another exploration of this into networks. So let me break this down. People talk. Something happens in your life. You call your mom, you call your friend, your neighbor. If you live in a small town, this is translating to you. Everybody knows everything. So then we say, doesn't how would this apply to taxes? It's really exciting research in this space where we've seen, for instance, a tax administration might send a compliance officer or have some kind of interaction with a taxpayer to encourage some type of compliance. Maybe they need to make, a, maybe they're late on their payments or there's something else going on. But here's what we see is that not only can this interaction change this taxpayer's behavior, bring them into compliance, we've seen if that person has worked with a tax preparer, there are other clients of that tax preparer that might start changing their behaviors as well. They might start reporting more income. They might start have, you know, making some of those late payments even without you contacting them. Why is that? Maybe you're talking to that tax preparer and they start talking to their other clients. Hey, the tax administration is, is paying attention and taking action here. Um, if you haven't done this, maybe we need to take a look at, at your tax returns and reporting. So I see this real opportunity here where if you can actually have these spillover compliance effects, are there ways where we don't need to worry about going to 100% of taxpayers, can we still get compliance just by penetrating these networks? Cool stuff, right? But let's not stop there. You can take these same insights into your tax administration. Our organizations employ a lot of employees and we want our employees to do their absolute best. And one of the things that might influence this is employee networks. So there's actually research that looks at how employees and departments are collaborating and interacting or sometimes not talking and providing actionable insights about how we can get new employees to be more productive more quickly, to improve, improve retention, to help transformation efforts simply by looking at how employees talk to each other across the organization. So having those right connections where you can connect to the right people at the right time when you need them and that the information that they have can make all of us better at our jobs. So network analysis, definitely an area that's really energizing me right now. The power of good old word of mouth. <laughs> right? <laughs> 
so in the guide, you also um, you also talk about digitalization as an accelerator for behavior behavioral insights. What role does digitalization play in this? We present three opportunities in digitalization. The first is automating tax processes and minimizing the need for action. At the core of a lot of successful behavioral interventions is just making things easy. If you can do something for the taxpayer, then you'll likely reduce the number of taxpayers who miss that action and become non-compliant. Or if you can shorten the amount of time it takes to complete an action, you know, we see more people will will actually do that and complete that action. The second is understanding customers and detecting anomalies. I think you'll find quite a few tax administrations that feel like they need more resources. So the question is, how can we optimize the resources we have? With data, we can better detect service needs, errors, even better detect risk of non-compliance. So digitalization essentially gives us more data, and that data can help us focus our resources and our efforts where they're going to have the biggest impact and also better know how to interact with that population. But this data, it's not only great just for detection, it's fundamental for looking at behavior patterns over time. And when you're looking to evaluate the impacts of a new policy or a new enforcement initiative, for instance, having data will better enable you to look at those behavioral responses by looking at behaviors both before and after that event. Um, The third is interventions to change behavior. Greater digitalization increases the types of interventions that are possible and potentially could enable real-time prompts. So consider today when we might look at returns after the fact, find errors and tell people to correct them. You know, what if we could reach people in the moment they are taking action, entering data, give them the information they need right then and right there to get it right. Digitalization just absolutely enhances the opportunities that are possible for a tax administration. Wonderful. You also address how tax administrations can build um, capabilities for doing behavioral insights. So for our listening tax administrations that are interested in getting started, what advice can you offer them? So this is actually one of the top questions that we would get when we're having these conversations. Said, I really want to do something. how can I do behavioral insights? And the the first thing that I, I usually tell people is, you know, there are so many experts out there, work with experts. Um, there's a lot of people that are really trained in um, specific techniques that behavioral scientists use. And, and so you really are looking at how, especially starting out, how can you partner with them, bring that expertise into your tax administration and your conversations. And so there's many ways that people are doing this, but commonly academics, we actually started with ours working with a lot of universities and others are doing that as well. From the university side, um, for us, we actually have uh, in the IRS, a, a, our joint statistical research program, but you can submit pr- proposals, you can come in, you go through a clearance process, you know, no one's coming in and just getting access to tax data right off the bat. <laughs> but there's a process by which we can bring in uh, professors or, or other uh, students 
who are going to work with us and bring their knowledge, bring some of the latest innovations to say, how, how can we do something here and how can we get insights? And so we actually, through this program, found it very economical because we had this mutual benefit of let's bring in people who can help us get insights, but then we can provide access to, you know, data and environments where you potentially could have a publishable insight and in academia, that's gold. For them, that was actually the compensation, the ability to potentially be able to publish new research. And so we didn't have to formally compensate them such as through contracts, but there's other you know, a, a lot of consultant agencies now out there that also will come in and specialize in behavioral insights. And so being able to actually just partner and bring that expertise in-house is really helpful. And also knowing context, what's going to work in one place may not necessarily work somewhere else. And sometimes what is possible within your tax administration is going to be unique to you. So if, if you were to start out, identify maybe where you want to explore bring in the experts who've been doing this so that they can help you do an evaluation. They need to work with your programs. They need to work inside. People can't do this independently. It has to really be a joint partnership where you have internal SMEs who know your programs, know your data, you know, know your people working with a specialized expertise. You might need to look at your legal considerations. Um, there's going to be data access or just access to your, you know, there's those, those kind of governance considerations where you need to make sure you have those foundations in place, but those partnerships are really the best place to start. Also, there's a lot of resources out there to help people get started in behavioral insights. You can go to some of our guides where we've, we've gotten started, but also connect with peers. Sounds like a perfect opportunity for us to pitch to that connect, right? Absolutely. <laughs> a great platform for tax officials to meet and discuss these sorts of issues. And also, I believe that your behavioral insights group also has a group on LinkedIn. Is that correct? There are behavioral insights groups on LinkedIn. We kind of keep our conversations amongst the, the member countries, but there are absolutely, there are, uh, there's, there are several different LinkedIn groups that are active in conversations and they're going to share their research. They're also uh, commenting on things that they're seeing from um, some of our, our, our leading uh, researchers in the field and experts, as well as things that they're seeing from colleagues. It's, it's a fantastic platform these days when we start getting into the ability to connect socially globally through modern, modern platforms. It's incredible. Fantastic. And we look forward to having you on to that connect, Alicia. <laughs> Me too. Is there anything else tax administrations need to know before they get started leveraging behavioral insights? I think one thing that especially those of us who've been in the community like to emphasize is that you can't expect big changes every time. Sometimes these experiments work and sometimes they don't. But the reason that we keep approaching them is like any kind of innovation agenda, you have to try it. it, it especially if you think even in private sector research and development companies, not everything is going to be your major success, but you learn along the way. And that's what's really important is having that environment where people can learn, being able to not see failure as failure. Um, if the experiment doesn't produce these great changes, it's what did we learn? What else can we try? keeping that environment safe for people where we feel like we can just move the needle a little bit and be able to experiment. That's one of the places where, where we need to start. Context, 
um, you know, one of the areas that we started, it was just around social norms. We, we understand that people are social beings and we, we like to, to not feel like those outliers. If this is the norm, if this is what most people are doing, we like to fall into that. And so some of the, the early behavioral nudges you would see are people saying, by the way, let me just let you know that you're one of these outliers. 90% of your community is, is paying their taxes on time. Just letting you know. <laughs> And, and that, that doesn't work everywhere and doesn't context. And so, because that was one of the early ones, we saw that used quite a bit. Everyone wanted to throw those social norms out there and sometimes it worked and sometimes it, it didn't. And it's very, it's very contextual. And so that's the point. You can't always say this worked over here. Let's just apply it. We don't need to test it. Just apply it. See what happens. It's a dialogue that I also see with practitioners. Sometimes we get into a place where it becomes about applying what we know today. And I want to keep encouraging people to really use the techniques to measure behavior and to not feel confined to just applying what we already know. There's a lot there, but still keeping us in that, that realm of, of, of still analyzing, uncovering new things, pushing for, forward, understanding context matters. There always can be another reason to, to measure and to test things is because there can be unexpected outcomes. We have these assumptions and we have our assumptions that say, if we do this, this will happen. And sometimes we take actions and we think it's going to make the world better. And it actually makes it worse. We would want to know that before we rolled it out across the entire population, right? Just to give you an example of that. So Eric Kirschler was just on yours. And so he had actually done some research with us as well. But one of their very interesting studies was that in looking at self-employed taxpayers, through their research, they actually showed, for instance, you had two kind of groups where, you know, you go and you have a group that got audited, but one group was determined to not be fully compliant and they needed to pay more taxes. And then there was the other half where you go and you do the audit and you don't find any wrongdoing. You feel like they've paid their fair share of taxes. Maybe they, uh, they are even owed a refund. Maybe they paid too much in their taxes last year. And we, we've increased compliance, but then what happens in year two, year three? And what they actually found is that there is a noticeable difference between these two groups. The group that was, that did not have any change or they did not have to pay more taxes suddenly started to report less income and pay fewer taxes. The other group where there was a change, they, they continued to report higher incomes and, 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 pay more taxes. And so it looks like for that group, there's a change. They learned something and they, they had that continued compliance. But this other group, it looked like compliance decreased. Why? So sometimes, you know, we wonder, are, are we helping people not only learn how to be compliant, but are we, are we helping them learn how not to be compliant? It's an interesting question. You talked about the success stories and opportunity areas, and but you also reminded us that sometimes it doesn't work. So what lessons uh, can you share with us about these times when it doesn't work? I think the culture is really important and the lessons from, from, from leaders, because sometimes I think from a researcher perspective, from your employee perspective, they can get discouraged because people really like to see when things work. Um, but sometimes we also need to take a step back and say, why did it not work? And sometimes it's because we didn't understand 
the population. We didn't understand the barrier, right? Um, so for instance, if you, outside of an experiment, if you increase your penalties and they're not actually improving first-time compliance, why? Well, if, you're, if your taxpayers didn't know how to be compliant, increasing your penalties isn't going to change that. So did you actually identify what was the barrier to compliance? What was the reason for this behavior? If it, if it didn't work, maybe there needs to be more research to understand that population. Um, I also think it's interesting to see how things might change over time. So for instance, even if you go back five years ago, you know, I think something that some of you guys might be familiar with is these QR kind of codes, right? These things that look like barcodes that are in squares that you can scan in. And, and there is definitely some popularity around some QR codes because it was innovative. Let's put these on communications. And sometimes you weren't getting a lot of people actually using them. So they were they were in a lot of communications, but people who received letters or, or other communications weren't necessarily scanning and clicking them to actually take action with them. Um, but we've now gone through the pandemic. Some of you may have been in cities where restaurants were increasingly saying, how can we reduce contact? And they would put these little QR codes out on their tables. And, and so if you guys were like me, you had never used these QR codes before. Suddenly you're walking into restaurants where you're practicing them, you're using them more often. It starts to become you know, less intimidating. It becomes more common. So here's an event that completely changes how we do our day-to-day. -day. If you start putting those, those QR codes in your communications after people start using this more regularly, maybe you're gonna see a greater take up. I don't know. I haven't, I haven't seen, uh, I know that there's been greater use of QR codes during uh, the pandemic. And so afterwards, if any of you guys are using those for your taxpayers, are you seeing that they're getting more use nowadays? Things that we might learn sometimes recycle back to those, those failed experiences in the past. Maybe they're, they're going to actually be successful later. Oh, absolutely. But just as a little anecdote, you know, my mother is still trembling in her boots every time she sees those QR codes. Oh. <laughs> so it must be generational. <laughs> I, I absolutely believe that. Yeah. Well, Alicia, my goodness, um, just wonderful. Thank you so much for this excellent conversation. At this point, I think I would love to open up the floor to our uh, you know, small little audience that we have with us today. Um, I know Dimitri, I, hopefully not to put you on the spot, but I know Dimitri had a question. If you'd like to ask Alicia, the floor is yours. You know, I'm a great fan of uh, behavioral economics um, and you may know the book by Richard Tyler, uh, which is called Nudge, uh, where he and his co-author give some very convincing examples about how we can address systematic biases in human behavior and to adjust that behavior um, in the best interest of the people. So have you noticed some systematic biases, behavioral biases, uh, when we are talking about uh, tax administration and um, what do you think are particularly effective ways uh, to deal with uh, such biases? Sure, I think there's a few ways that we can kind of approach this as well. And there's certainly the biases from, uh, sometimes we look at our cognitive biases. There is another question that I'm also seeing from text chat and our audience questions around gender as well. And I think equity is something that's, it's an important conversation, um, not only here at home, but globally. And, and so if we can start there, I think 
I can say that I have seen, you know, some of the other research where people are looking at in different contexts where there might be those kinds of biases. And the example that I can think of here at home, which I'm not saying that there was a bias, but just how we can look at this and evaluate whether there is a potential bias or is a potential gap. Because when we look at biases, we're saying that some groups are gonna be disproportionately affected. So for instance, when we started our pandemic, um, we knew that there was gonna be an economic impact and it was really important for tax administrations to lessen that impact on the, the taxpayers. And so we see we saw a lot of stimulus payments going out to individuals, going out to businesses, families. And the way that we wanted to get things out very quickly in the US was just an automated system of, you know, if you paid your tax returns, we'll we'll give you the stimulus based on you know the contact information that, that we had from that and the, the payment information. But not everyone is required to file their tax returns. There are minimum thresholds. And so if you only take that approach, you are missing that entire population that never filed or didn't file in the past couple of years. And so there was a really quick effort to um, create new systems so that these non-filers can come and file so that they would be eligible and not only not that they would be eligible, but they would be able to receive these payments. So there wouldn't be that disproportionate impact. And when you start looking at who doesn't file, it's very likely, particularly on those lower income, that you're going to see some differences to the population that is filing their taxes on a regular basis. And so understanding that sometimes the way that we implement can leave some people aside. And, and also, I saw something published with the, the OECD as well in looking at certain areas, there's different consumer patterns between you know, women versus others. And so if you were to look at your VAT taxes, they were suggesting that there might be a disproportionate impact because of those consumer behaviors. And so I think that's where we kind of start is really looking at who is impacted by this policy, by this program, by this activity, and how does that differ from the general population? Are we looking at, you know, a certain group is, you know, 10% of the population, but they're 20% of the impacted group and, and being able to go in and, and really take a lens, not towards what policies do we want to impact, but it's the valuation. It's going in, it's, it's sometimes looking at the data of what is going to be that impact. And I think that lens is really important. So thanks for this really, really engaging uh, discussion, Alicia. And uh, I, um, I, there's just so many questions, but one in particular I had um, returning uh, just, just a few days ago from a, uh, a visit to one of our partner countries. Um, uh, something that, that really, really um, interests me is, is the, what, what you think would be the kinds of capacity and tools and uh, infrastructure, so to speak, that that tax administrations need to have in place to be able to really um, be able to track and monitor, understand and interpret, and and then respond to um, you know taxpayer behavior, behaviors in the taxpayer population. I, I mean, I'm really curious to hear this because um, it, you know it's one thing to know that that you know tracking behavioral. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, trends is important, but uh, also this idea that you you have to be able to use that information, um, but in, and have the infrastructure in place to do so. So I'm curious what what you think needs to be in place to be able to do that. 
it it can it can be a little different too and and but absolutely you know, so we know for e-filing for instance if you're electronic filing if you are saving you know all of those you know fields somewhere then it gives us an ability to look at historically are there differences in how people's income trajectory has gone or or we can look at differences again on things like expenses across people that have similar occupations, but it starts with collecting that data somewhere. So having, having that data stored and there's different ways that people can do it. You know, sometimes people are looking at data warehousing, um, you can move into environments of data lakes. There's, there's different ways in the data, but having your, your data engineers come in, your IT departments are really important to say, you know, how can we create that environment to store that, but also how are you collecting it? How are you transmitting that data on call centers? If you had people that called and they're calling multiple times, if you could see in the data that from a particular phone number, they're calling multiple times, you immediately know this person is not having their need met. So if you were able to follow up and say, you know, we saw that you had to, to, to call multiple times, or if you had survey data where you know, someone called in and then there's a survey that says, you know, was your need met? Um, there's technologies now where we can do voice to text, where you're just having a, a phone conversation with your call center. And I think we see that also like this call may be recorded for training purposes. You know, if, if you were to transcribe that and store that data somewhere, it takes sometimes, you know, that can take up a huge uh, infrastructure, actually store the amount of data, but uh, there's options for whether you're doing it like on-prem, which is on your, your, your local infrastructure, or if you're going into a cloud, I mean, there's different ways that you can do that. Most important is having that infrastructure available. And sometimes it's just massive. It's too much. It's too much data. I mean, if we think about the amount of taxpayers that we have, even in America, that's a lot. And it, it also, your systems and trying to search that data can be very slow. So not only is it important to have that data, but sometimes how can you condense that data to make it easier for people to actually work through that? And so sometimes pilots of, you know, let's just get a small subset to work with and see how can we um, better work with this information. For instance, maybe you don't need all of the data that's collected, but sometimes what we would do in a research environment is, you know, we might make a copy, you get select fields, and you put it in a smaller environment. Um, I, I hear, at least in the technology space, you know, the conversation has gone from big data to small data. It's how can you pull out just what you need and put it into a smaller environment when you're going and running these computer codes to grab this data, it can do this more quickly so that you can really enable your, your researchers and your teams to work with this better. Sometimes we are creating separate research databases so that we're not necessarily pinging their systems. There's a bit of a security there of saying, here's, here's kind of a separate data set. And also sometimes if we're looking at just overall events and the impact, we might even de-identify that data. So that's another consideration that, that tax administrations might have in some areas where you can go in and remove all of the identifiers or give it some random identifiers so that you actually don't know which taxpayer that is. You're helping to protect that data, but still being able to see what are those, those, those aggregate insights that doesn't always work if you're trying to identify like Joe has called me 20 times and he really needs some help guys. <laughs> you know, we really need to talk to Joe. Um, so that that's one thing that I think on the infrastructure is just working with your IT, your, your data engineers to say, how can we, we build this, but also working with analytics teams, various different tools out there that, that people can use.
we have R or SAS or Python, which a lot of people are using in kind of this big data environment. If you're looking at more of the data analytics side and using that for behavioral segmentation and behavioral analytics, those are some of those tools there. But I don't want to limit limit that because, you know, as we were mentioning earlier with this survey experiment from, from Tax Norway, there's a, there are different tools that they would use for those kind of survey experiments. Other people are taking people in the lab. If you don't have this data infrastructure, you can still start today. Um, I just wanted to find out um, from your experience where you have been able to implement this in any of the tax administrations, what has been um, the experience, especially for those tax administrations that are just on a journey of uh, data-driven compliance management, especially that uh, it's, it's um, when you come down to Africa, we are adopting technology. And yes, the technology is there, so there's a lot of data, but bringing uh, your staff on board to be able to use this data to make decisions regarding uh, the taxpayer and revenue management. Yeah, oh, that's so exciting also to see you guys starting your journey. Um, on the implementation, I think we've seen some really successful implementations. And sometimes when they have been successful, it's also, it's kind of like, you know, if we've done some of our experiments, part of it is getting the right stakeholders together, is getting that right buy-in. And then on the, the system design side, I've seen some results, for instance, in even in Australia, we are putting in these prompts. They saw a lot of changes in the data just by having these prompts. Um, there's also an example over in New Mexico where um, they're looking at unemployment insurance and doing very similar things of helping to make sure that uh, when people are going to claim some of these benefits that they are actually eligible and using some prompts to, to make sure that the, the people are, are admitting to some of the income that might make them not eligible for some of these, these benefits. And so there have been some really successful implementations, both in maybe some letter experiments, um, changing some of the call scripts, as well as just designing some of your online systems that's going to encourage some of the results. And, and we do have a few examples that are going to be in the um, Behavioral Insights for Better Tax Administration Brief Guide as well. Let me throw on a couple additional insights. One of the things that I think when we're getting starting, it's not just about the implementation, but it's getting the organization ready for doing things differently. And these are conversations where um, I will say, starting with the, the top level, having that top level buy-in, going back to that is really, really important. The next is buy-in at even lower levels. Sometimes starting with those examples and business cases of here's where it's been done elsewhere, showing that it has had some successes as you were asking, I think does help people um, along their journey of kind of overcoming some of their apprehension where, okay, so I have seen that somewhere else. Someone's done that successfully. Maybe that can, can be successful here. And, and also recognizing, you know, if you are implementing any kind of innovation, any kind of data-driven, there are changes even to our employees about how they approach things, how they use things. And so if you're asking people to use data, you know, do they have the skills to use data? Do they feel comfortable? Do you have that, that data literacy where it's building that capacity within your organization? And sometimes it's building habits because there's very certain 
ways that we like to do things. And we do those repeatedly. We do those over and over again. And so then when you throw something at us that says, how, you know, do it differently, use this information. Some people are, are going to catch on very quickly and other people are going to be, be slower and, and recognizing where your people are in the adoption of those new processes, those new tools. And sometimes it's a complete change. Whenever we move digitalization, there's usually people that were doing something similar in a very manual fashion. And they, you know, if the organization is going to be moving to a more automated way to do things, for instance, it might mean that these individuals are no longer going to be doing some of those jobs and those same jobs, and maybe they're going to be shifted into other things. And so preparing the organization for data-driven, definitely have communications often, like have your, your leadership express repeatedly their commitment to this, having more feedback loops through the organization that says, you know, how are things going? You know, what, you know, how do they understand, you know, do you have the organization bought in and, and along that journey with you? Um, all of those, those communications and feedback loops and making sure people know what they need to know is going to be really important. We look forward to having you back again, hopefully sometime in December, I mean, in September with everyone all together so we can revisit some of these topics. I don't know, Justin, Mimbo, if you wanted to ask a question quickly or no just just wonderful this is wonderful <laughs> this is wonderful to see i mean these are things that uh, we seem to know day to day but uh, coming at it from a realistic and pragmatic perspective is really wonderful alicia thank you very very much and also to appreciate dimitri uh, blender steve for the questions it, it, it lends a lot to what we are all trying to do, networking, uh, ecosystems, uh, and so on. And, and uh, you know, it, it leads me back to what is going on in Nairobi, which uh, Dimitri knows about. And Steve has just been back from Uganda, where Blender is uh, one of the critical communications persons. Um, and Dimitri also lives in Uganda. So, Steve, you missed each other. Uh, but... <laughs> You know, it's, it's that networking. Um, people want to know what is happening elsewhere so that they shortcut the implementation processes uh, and uh, the whole experience and not uh, repeating the same, uh, you know, uh, going into that problem trap you know, and those challenges they learn. And it's just wonderful, Alicia. Thank you very, very much. I'm so excited. Um, especially linking your community of BIs <laughs> to the to that Connect. You know, that, that's <laughs> yeah. incredible. You know, I'm really excited to connect further. And Alicia, we invite you to, to use, to leverage our platform for surveys or any kind of research perhaps that you're involved in. Thank you, Annette. Thanks so much, Alicia. Have a lovely week and a lovely summer. And as always, if we can support you in any way, please reach out to us. Thank you. Bye, everyone. The Tadat Podcast is available free of charge. The views expressed in the Tadat Podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent those of the International Monetary Fund or the IMF policy. Materials from the podcast may be reproduced with proper attribution. Comments and correspondence may be emailed to podcast at tadat.org. Tadat is a collaborative undertaking of the following partners, the European Union, France, 
Germany, the International Monetary Fund, Japan, the Netherlands, Norway, Switzerland, the United Kingdom, and the World Bank.